So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the the Jews read this inscription For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which said, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her to his house. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says. They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths with the spices. 
as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Father, we come tonight understanding that Christ went through a horrific event on that Friday when he was crucified. And Lord, we pray through the eyes of faith that we would understand more deeply the meaning of the cross. And Father, we pray tonight that you would just give us wisdom as we briefly look into your word before our communion time together. And Father, if there's anything that's distracting us, anything that maybe this week has been laid heavy on our hearts, I pray that we would bring that thing to the cross, that we would lay it there. And Father, that we would lay all of our burdens at the cross, that we would be fresh this evening to receive your word. And Father, we ask you to bless each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably one of the most famous sermons, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, was Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And tonight I want to talk to you not about sinners in the hands of an angry God, but I want to talk to you about God in the hands of angry sinners. Uh, The fact that God actually allowed himself in the person of his son to be taken into custody, to be mocked, to be beaten, falsely judged by these angry sinners who finally succeeded in their plan to execute him. I hope that we all avoid the mistakes of these evil men, these sinners, that as we look at them, them briefly tonight, who foolishly sat in judgment on Jesus. And that I pray that we would bow before him before that awful day when he comes to sit in judgment on sinners. I hope that by considering his willing but terrible treatment at the hands of these evil men, that we will be moved by his great love and sacrifice on our behalf to follow him with more devotion in our daily lives. And I'm looking at Luke chapter 22, verses 63 to 71. And because we've had the the scripture readings, you can read that on your own. It's just another account But I want want you to know that in John it tells us that Jesus was taken first to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. And this was probably followed by a nighttime meeting with Caiaphas presiding over it. And since it was illegal under Jewish regulation to try a prisoner at night, Caiaphas put together a quick meeting for the early morning of the Sanhedrin to kind of just rubber stamp all the decisions they made throughout the night in that illegal meeting. And then Jesus was taken for an initial meeting with Pilate himself. And this was followed by a, a second, more public meeting out with the crowds, as we read, with the people. But our text here in Luke shows us that the sinners who sat in judgment on Jesus, also it shows us that Jesus is the one who sat in judgment on the sinners. And that's 
the point tonight. Although sinners presently sit in judgment on Jesus, beloved, the day is going to come one day when Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners. Let's look at this because the first point is sinners presently sit in judgment on Jesus. Just as Jesus allowed himself to be bound, to be mocked, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to be rejected by these evil men, even though in a millisecond he could have wiped them all out, called angels, and they would have taken him away. But he didn't do that. He willingly endured their abuse. And he did so through his mercy so that some will come to repentance and faith while others store up wrath for the day of judgment. But I find that today, the church age, the day of age of grace, is, is an age where God shows us his great patience. God allows sinners in the present age of grace to sit in judgment on Jesus in the sense of allowing them to hold and express their own views of Jesus. You hear this all the time when you ask people, who do you think Jesus is? Even to the point of blasphemy. And Luke shows us here that some sinners sit in judgment on Jesus in their mad pursuit of pleasure. Perhaps after the interview with Annas, while the Jewish leaders were waiting to gather in that nighttime meeting, the Jewish temple guards who were holding Jesus in custody, decided to have some fun of their own with the prisoner. And so it says that they mocked Jesus, perhaps imitating his teaching style, standing up, mimicking him, repeating some of his claims, perhaps even with that well-known Galilean accent, making fun of some of the things that he had said, The other Gospels relate that they spit in his face, maybe even having a spitting contest to see who could get it closest to his lips. Then they made a game, blind man's bluff. They blindfolded him and hitting him in the face, mockingly asked him to prophesy about who hit you. I think of those men, if they only knew that he already knew who hit them, who hit him. Luke adds in verse 65, they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming him. See, their mad pursuit of fun and pleasure caused them to do terrible things to the spotless Son of God. And at first, when you read those words in Scripture, you're thinking, how could they do this? How horrible. How could anyone treat another human being this way? I read a quote by Spurgeon this past week. He says, we need to lay aside our indignation and bring forth penitence because we all have hit our dear Savior in the face with our own sin. It was because of our sin that he endured the abuse of these sinners and went willingly to the cross. Hopefully we're not as cruel as these wicked men But we've all put personal pleasure ahead of the things of God to some degree in our lives at one point or another. Perhaps some of them made sport of Jesus ignorantly, not having heard his claims or witnessed his miracles. But we have heard, and yet we've made sport of our blessed Savior probably throughout our life at one time or another. We've laughed at entertainment that mocks God 
that mocks what's evil in his sight. We've all indulged in pleasure that the Bible calls sin. And see, in doing so, we we have done what these wicked men did to our Savior. We're no different than them. read an article this past week about Rembrandt, the famous painting of the crucifixion. If you've ever seen this, you can put that up there, Sam. This, this picture, first you look at the cross of Christ, him hanging on the cross, then you notice kind of a crowd lingering there and they're jeering. And finally you notice on the edge of that picture a lone figure, almost hidden in the shadows. That's Rembrandt himself. The great artist realized that his sins had helped nail Jesus to the cross. So he painted himself into the picture. And so should we. We should remember that he, as our song said earlier, that he, our, our, our sins held him on the cross. But some sinners, not just for personal pleasure, but some sinners sit in judgment on Jesus in their mad pursuit of power. And we see this in the religious leaders. They went through the formality of these trials under the guise of justice. They asked him questions about his claims, but they weren't really seeking the truth. They were just looking to trap him. Their minds were already made up, and basically they wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to hang on to that power that they enjoyed in their religion that they followed. They wanted to keep their lives and their living just the same, being lords of their own lives. And their mad pursuit for power really caused them to prejudge Jesus and even disregard his claims. John MacArthur in his commentary points out several ways that the Jewish leaders violated a number of Jewish laws. He says no criminal trial could be started at night. The Jewish council could not initiate charges, but could only consider charges brought by an outside party. The initial proceedings took place at the high priest's home and not in the temple, as prescribed in the law. Jesus was tried without a defense counsel. The defendant was supposed to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. He could not be convicted on the basis of testimony against himself. Conviction required the testimony of at least two reliable witnesses whose testimony had to agree. They had to affirm that their testimony was true on the basis of direct experience, not hearsay or presumption. They had to identify the precise time and location of the events about which they testified. Actually, false witnesses during that day were subject to the same penalty that the accused would suffer if convicted. Strong motivation to speak only the truth, especially in capital cases. In capital cases, the death sentence could not be carried out until the third day after it was given. And in the intervening time, the members of the council were to go and fast. This meant that the trial could not be convened during a feast, such as the Passover. A pronouncement of guilt by the high priest was contrary to the normal order. It should have started with the least senior members. If a council member unanimously voted for conviction in a capital case, the accused was actually set free because the necessary element of mercy was presumed to be lacking. 
So from the start to the finish, these, the Jewish council trial of Jesus was a mockery of justice in violation of their own laws. The questions they asked Jesus were not sincere. They weren't looking to get the truth. They were looking to devise a trap for him with his own words so that they could accuse, accuse him before Pilate. If he claimed to be Christ, if he claimed to be king, then he stood in opposition to Rome. We know that Rome denied the Jews the right to carry out capital punishment. since The Jewish leaders did not want to draw fire from those in the multitudes that liked Jesus. They wanted grounds to accuse him before Pilate. And so they let him do the dirty work of crucifying Jesus. Now these were religious men who instigated, they carried out this mockery of justice against Jesus. Later they would get the Romans involved, but at this point it was both the guards who mocked and beat Jesus and the leaders who led this unfair trial. They were all religious people. They were about to participate in the feast of the day, the Jewish feast of Passover. They were at the temple each week for religious services. They professed to follow the law of Moses. And yet you look at their hearts and they were far from God, filled with darkness, filled with sin. See, we should learn from that that just going to church or participating in religious rituals is not enough. True Christianity is a matter of the heart before God, beloved. To use religion as a covering for our own seeking of pleasure or power is really to live as if there were no living God at all who knows every thought and every motive. It's really to deceive ourselves in the worst possible way. We should also learn from these religious men that we're all subject to the danger of making up our minds based on personal preferences or desires and then coming up with the evidence to support our cases. See, these men lacked They liked their position. They liked their power. They liked their influence. It was financially lucrative for them. And when Jesus upset the tables, you remember, in the temple and disrupted some of their profit-making schemes, they knew they had to get rid of them. And ignoring all the evidence that backed his claims to be both Lord and Christ, they went looking for contrary evidence to support their claims that he was what they would consider an imposter. And we all act just like they do if we're not careful. I've heard Christian leaders speak out vehemently against divorce until they go through a divorce. Then all of a sudden, their view changes. I've known teachers who speak out against some inerrant doctrine And then they're found in some illicit relationship with maybe a a woman who's part of that very movement that they spoke against. And all of a sudden, the criticisms of that movement stop. And See, we need to get self out of the way. We need to judge our pride and our sinful desires. We need to seek to obey God's word as we read it plainly in Scripture. 
The Jewish leaders needed to examine their own hearts and honestly ask the question, who is Jesus? Are his claims true or are they false? Because the truth is the day is coming when Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners. Sinners sat in judgment on Jesus, but one day Jesus will come and sit in judgment on sinners. You look at his calm demeanor in spite of all this wrongful treatment. I mean, a sinner would have been yelling. A sinner would have been trying to defend themselves, saying, hey, wait, you can't do this. My rights have been violated. You don't see that with Christ. He bore all the abuse silently before God, the Scripture says, as a lamb led to the slaughter. When to be silent would be to deny the truth, we see that he spoke straightforwardly, giving testimony concerning who he was. Clearly, both cannot be true. The Sanhedrin and Jesus claims they're too polarized. One is true, one is false. Commentator Daryl Bach says, either Jesus is right or the Jewish court is right. Jesus' claim is either blasphemy or deadly serious truth. See, although they asked with the wrong motives, the two questions the Sanhedrin asked Jesus are the two supreme questions that we have to consider. If you are the Christ, tell us. And are you the Son of God? Because one day Jesus will sit in judgment on sinners because he is the Christ, beloved. The first request, if you are the Christ, tell us. That's what they asked. It was insincere on their part. Jesus knew that and he replied, in effect, what good will it do to tell you? Since your minds are made up, basically, is what he said to them. See, they weren't asking the question out of a heart that wanted to know the truth. We've all dealt with people like that. They were trying to bait Jesus into an argument. They were trying to set him up. In spite of their evil motives, though, the fact of the matter is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Luke chapter 2, verse 11 says, For today, in the city of David... There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Luke 2.26 tells us, Before he had seen the Lord's Christ, talking about Simeon, in Luke chapter 3, verse 15, it says that the people were in a state of expectation, wondering whether or not John the Baptist could be the Christ. John clearly denied that as he pointed people to Christ. In Luke 4.41 We even learn that the demons were proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. He would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. The demons knew it. In Luke 9.20, Peter made this famous confession that he believed that Jesus was the Christ of God. In 2041, Jesus asked the scribes how the Christ could be David's son since David's calls him Lord. See, Jesus is clearly God's anointed son. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the king over the nations. To resist Jesus' lordship is to resist God Almighty and to be in rebellion against the one who will judge all the earth. 
But secondly, Jesus will also sit in judgment on sinners because he's the Son of God, not just the Christ. Jesus goes on to tell the religious leaders that from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That brings several Old Testament prophecies together that we don't have time to go through right now. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Daniel 7. All these different prophecies. And again, Jesus is asserting both that he is the Lord and the Christ, the ruler of God's eternal kingdom, who will judge all the nations. He uses the phrase son of man in reference to himself. And you notice the Jewish leaders responded by asking, are you the son of God then? See, they got the connection because they knew the Psalms. They knew Daniel. They understood what he was saying. They knew that the Son of Man, Messiah, is God's Son in a unique way that no one else is. And so Jesus is really turning the tables on them. And they thought they were sitting in judgment on him. He lets them know the reality. He's sitting in judgment on them. And Peter even proclaimed on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus whom you had crucified, God has raised up to his right hand, where he is installed on David's throne as both Lord and Christ. Those are the facts. You can't get around that. Jesus answers their questions about being the Son of God by literally saying, you say that I am? I mean, why didn't he simply just say yes? (laughs) I think the reason goes back to Jesus' explanation for why he spoke in parables. In order that Seeing, they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. See, parables reveal truth to seekers, but it conceals truth to the scoffers who continue in their spiritual blindness. That's what these men were. They were scoffers. So Jesus says, yes. He's basically saying, yes, I am. But he's not saying it straightforwardly because he doesn't want to respond to their questions and inquiries this way. But Jesus will also sit, thirdly, in judgment on sinners because they have heard his testimony, but they rejected it. They heard it, but sadly had not submitted to Jesus as Lord. See, this is always the issue. You've got to ask yourself the question, how am I responding to the testimony that I hear about the Lord Jesus Christ? God allowed himself in the person of his eternal son to be put in the hands of angry sinners. Jesus willingly went to the cross, despising the shame, but now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 2. And if you're running your own life, beloved, I'm just here to tell you that you're not in submission to the lordship of Christ. If you do not repent and yield to his lordship before you die and before he returns, you will no longer sit in judgment on him. He will sit in judgment on you. And there'll be no second chance. That will be eternal judgment. He is today the Lamb of God who suffered as the penalty due to sinners. But soon, rebellious sinners will cry out to the rocks. Revelation 6, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? I want to close before we have our communion time together 
little illustration I read about an archbishop in Paris, and he was preaching to his great congregation. And he told them about an illustration about these three worldly, godless young men who wandered into his cathedral one day. And two of these guys bet the third one that he would not go into the confessional and make a phony confession to the priest, just make stuff up. Well, the priest realized what was happening. And so when the pretending penitent sinner had finished, the priest said this, to every confession there is a penance. You see that crucifix over there? Go, kneel down before it, and repeat three times as you look into the face of the crucified, you did all this for me, and I couldn't care less. Well, the young man emerged from the confessional box to collect his bet from his two other buddies. But when he told his friends how it went in the confessional and what the priest had actually said to him, they said, hey, we're not going to pay you until you do what the guy said. You've got to complete this deal. So he walked slowly toward the crucifix. He knelt down. He looked up into that statue of Christ and he began, you did all this for me and I, he couldn't get any further. Tears flooded his eyes. His heart was broken over his sin. There his old life ended and his new life began. The priest concluded his sermon. I was that young man. The account of Christ's suffering through the Gospels leads us to where we're at right now, this table. When you come to this table, which is a picture that he gave to us To remember him by, that's what he said, do this in remembrance of me. Say in your own heart, you did all this for me, and I, and you fill in the blank. If he gave his son into the hands of angry sinners on your behalf, I just ask you tonight, shouldn't you give your all for him? Father, we thank you for our time in your word. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for this table that's before us. Lord, you went through incredible amount of not just physical anguish, but spiritual anguish as well for our sin. Lord, you were treated on that day the spotless Lamb of God, someone who had committed no sin, was perfect in every way, The sin of all who would ever believe was placed on your shoulders and you bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Father, we thank you for that. And we pray that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time, that you would just speak your truth to our hearts. That you would draw us close to the cross. That we would glory in none other than the cross. And Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.
Amen.